This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered if Korea has always been divided? Or who the Sassanids truly were? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you by London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, here we go again. How are you today? I am great, Paul. The weather has finally turned around here in the UK. As you know, all us British people are obsessed with the weather. And right now, it's wonderful and sunny. So that means I'm in the basement talking about things that happened in the past. There's nowhere else I'd rather be in this glorious sunshine. And we're entering the middle of the third century. And of course, Rome's crisis of the third century is in full swing, but we're going to take kind of a, a step aside right now. You guys, you know, the world, this is world history and, and the world is way more than just Rome. However, even some of these other things affect Rome. Um, Paul, what have we got on the docket today? Well, I know we're going to be making our first foray into a very important place in the case of you, mm -hmm. a place that we have wanted to discover, but now is the time. And that is, we are going to step into the Korean Peninsula in your segment. And today for my piece, in my piece, we're going to be talking about a power that we've been talking about for a couple of episodes, but they've kind of had to share the stage, and I think it's time for that to end right now. And that, of course, is the Sassanid Empire, but it's more than just the military conflicts with Rome. These folks are going to be around in our show for another four centuries until the Arab Muslim conquest. And with a player that is this large, this important, this dynamic, and this long-lasting, we're going to get into a deeper dive into exactly who the Sassanids were, what we know, what we want to know, what we can't know, and how did they operate, how did they live, and what was their bigger picture and their world, which I think is both extremely fascinating, extremely important, and it'll also give us a glimpse into some of the important stuff that is happening in the crisis of the third, third century through the lens of the Sassanids as well. So we won't completely lose touch, as you mentioned before. It will still mm -hmm. be a pulse, but of course in our next episode, we're going to get into some pretty deep stuff on, on the Roman end that we've never even touched before. That's entirely new to this show that I think you guys will really enjoy, but you'll see that then. And more importantly, you'll see what I was just talking about in terms of what we're covering today in just a moment. And with that, of course, let's queue up our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, do you remember when I was talking about China for that time and how bored I got about talking about China? Oh, God, well, yes. Yep, I'm talking about China again, kind of. They're, they're a player in all of this. And when we last checked in on China, the three kingdoms had finally formed. And these these uh, three kingdoms are perhaps most well known for fighting amongst themselves. However, their wars were not just civil ones. These three kingdoms raged wars with outsiders too. During this decade, a war broke out between the kingdom of Sao Wei and Gagulia, the largest of the three kingdoms of what we now call the Korean Peninsula. Yep, China wasn't the only place going through a Free Kingdoms period. Yep, Korea 
was going through a free kingdom period too. And these three kingdoms lasted way more than China's three kingdoms. So the, the, the three kingdom period of Korean history is believed to span from roughly 57 BC to 668 AD. So that was a huge amount of time Korea was split into three kingdoms. And it was uh, it, these three kingdoms not only inhabited the modern Korean peninsula as we see today, but a large part of Manchuria was added to the mix as well. And if you're like me and aren't 100% sure as to what Manchuria is, it's um, basically a large part of modern China, the part of modern China north of um, Korea, of the Korean peninsula. That's Manchuria. It's a very historically important part of the world. It's funny because obviously for the last 70 or so years, Korea has very notably been partitioned at the 38th parallel. And you don't really think of it beyond that because that's the world that we have known. And of course, we haven't really caught up with Korea at this point. But it seems, and you know, you can tell me if it's true or not, but there does seem to be something of a history here of the Korean Peninsula being diced up and partitioned, separated. It's so interesting. Like this relatively small peninsula, like I always find it fascinating that it's not just but you can easily go back and think, why isn't that just part of China anyway? And of course, it's not because it's got very much its own history, its own culture, its own identity. But beyond that, not only is it not only part of the much larger country that engulfs it, it's separated into two countries now. And it's just, it's bizarre how such a small, relatively small part of the world has a, such a split history. And it's, it's super fascinating. I think there have been times in history where Korea have been one, has been one unified entity but that those times are far and few between and uh during this time so during the uh, three kingdoms era of korea the three kingdoms were bakaji Silla, and gogolia and however there's actually a fourth entity on this peninsula too and that was called gaia that this was a small confederation so it's not actually considered uh one of the kingdoms the one we're most interested in of course is gogolia and Gagolia was by far the largest of these three kingdoms. It was supposedly found in around 37 BC. And this kingdom has played a large role in shaping the culture and history of Korea to this day. And the name of this, this kingdom, uh, Gagolio, uh, gave us the name Korea we have today. That's how important they are. The modern Korea is basically named after this single kingdom on the peninsula. Now, Mr. Name explained something I'm curious about because I don't remember exactly where I heard this, but in terms of the name of Korea, and obviously we have two of them at the moment, but mm. in English, it's known as Korea, but it's not necessarily known as that today as Korea. I believe it's partly known as Joseon. It definitely is one of those countries with a exonym and an endonym where a different name in the country, in the language and outside the language. I'll be honest with you, I haven't actually looked into that. I've I've done a video on North Korea and South Korea about what they might call each other. Um, that was many, many moons ago, though. If Korea has a different name in Korean, I wouldn't be surprised because a lot of the other countries around that part of the world, like primarily Japan being known as Nihon. China is known as Zhongguo, by my, 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 pardon the pronunciation I want, in uh, Mandarin Chinese. And likewise, how uh, Japan is known as Nihon slash Nippon in Japanese. Obviously, these are three very different languages. It's not really fair to bunch them all together, but we can geographically bunch them together because they're all very close together geographically. So I wouldn't be too surprised if Korea did have a different name in Korean. So as far as I can tell here, North Korea calls itself Chosan Min Jujuri Inmin Kong Waguk, translated mm -hmm. as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Whereas the government, at least after 1948, the Southern government mm -hmm. adopted, it was a provisional government at the time, as Daihan Min Guk. So today the South use Hanguk, mm. not just to refer to South Korea, but Korea as a whole. Mm -hmm. Or Namhan, which means South Han for South mm -hmm. Korea, and uh, Bukhan for North Korea. Mm -hmm. And South less formally refers to North Korea as Ebook or the North. And South Koreans often refer to Korea as Yuri Nara, meaning our nation or our country. So, yeah, this is definitely one of those things where, well, or even here, in addition, the official name for the Republic of Korea in the Korean languages. Daihan Minguk, which usually is translated as the Republic of 
Korea. And so, and North Koreans use Joseon, as I was mentioning before. Mm. The exonym and endonym are extremely in play here, so it's kind of funny how that works out. If, if you were anybody other than Mr. Name Explain, that's most certainly not something I would have focused on right there. No, that's okay. No, I have, like I said, many, many years ago, I did make a video literally called What the North and South Korea Call Each Other. Which sounds like the start of a really tasteless joke, but, um, <laughs> but um, uh, the best kind. Yes, but um, it, I do remember talking about that sort of thing. But it was so long ago, and unfortunately, guys, I barely remember the moment a video is published. I basically empty that knowledge from my brain. One thing that is interesting to note, as far as the two Koreas today, since they have been separated for so long, mm. their dialects of the Korean language have split dramatically yes i've heard about that it, and apparently it's apparently pretty intense yeah. from what i can tell but yeah so golio as said they lent their name to the modern nation of korea and it took up so if you you can find a map of the three kingdoms but at its peak uh, gogolio took up primarily the north and center of the korean peninsula and a large chunk of manchuria and the other two kingdoms and the guy confederation were all sort of Nook to where on the southern tip, Gregorio really takes up a huge amount of the Korean Peninsula at this time. It was the largest and it was, of course, the most powerful too. And their location meant that they actually shared a, more, a northern border with China too. And at this time in uh, this decade of world history, that border belonged to Sao Wei. And if you remember Sao Wei, they were the kingdom formed by the famous or infamous beastly poet, barbarian poet, Sao Sao. Depending how you look at him. Yeah, how you are looking at him. He founded the kingdom of Sao Wei in uh, 220 AD. Actually, he didn't find it. His son uh, found it, Sao Pi. He was the first emperor of this kingdom. Uh, Sao Sao died in uh, 220 AD. And since 220 AD, there had actually been a few more emperors. Uh, Sao Pi's son, Sao Lu, ruled from 226 to 239 AD. And in 239 AD, Sao Ru's adopted son, Sao Fang, took the throne after uh, his adopted father's Sao Ru's death. However, Sao Fang was just seven years old when he took over. And this meant his regions of Sao Shuang and Sime Yi actually did most of the ruling. And uh, between 220 AD and this point in history, Sao Wei did what their founder Sao Sao did best, and that was fight battles. However, his descendants weren't quite as proficient in the art of war as he was. And most of these battles were, of course, with the other two kingdoms of China. And while Sao Wei didn't gain much land, they didn't lose much either. The borders of these three kingdoms didn't change that much during uh, the history of the three kingdoms of China. Of course, it wasn't only uh, these two kingdoms they had to deal with, however, but they shared the border with Gregorio and they butted heads often too. However, uh, Gregorio and Sao Wei didn't actually always fight as trades were known to happen between these two kingdoms. And what's even more interesting is that in 238 AD, there was actually an alliance set up between Sao Wei and Gregorio. However, that alliance wouldn't last for too long, as by 242 AD, uh, the kingdom of Gregorio was ruled under King Dongshan. And it was in this year he ordered his troops to raid on Sao Wei. Apparently, he thought Sao Wei would be fine with this due to that alliance. He was like, I can raid you guys. It's fine. We're, we're cool. They won't mind one raid. And obviously, Sao Wei were not too pleased about this and their alliances started to crumble anyway so eh, maybe this is going to happen something i'm curious about in regards to mm. this alliance there seems to be a a chasm of understanding here diplomatically between these two powers in regards to what this alliance entails and the obligations to the other and so i'm finding it interesting that one side thinks that they can basically go off on this excursion <laughs> rating having fun, and they think that their ally has their back, but clearly their ally, for whatever reason, has a very different interpretation of the agreement that they came to. And I find that really, really interesting. Now, if it's a matter of just one side squelching on the other, like, for example, if Sao Wei's responsibility was indeed based on this agreement to allow this sort of thing to happen and have their back under all circumstances, that's one thing, and they squelch. 
So that's something I find very interesting. But it looks like here, that alliance was created and cultivated for a very specific purpose that had was not exactly what, you know, I would imagine the Sao had in mind when they made it. It sounds like the Guangzong are definitely trying to push the envelope in the understanding of this agreement, given the very specific nature of its existence in the first place. Am I wrong? Yeah, so as you mentioned, this alliance, it wasn't set up because Sao Wei and Gagolio were the best of buds. Um, it, it kind of inland, kind of uh, stuck between them, there was a local clan called the Gongsun. And this alliance was actually set up to resubjugate this local clan. So with that done, it was kind of like, we don't really need this alliance anymore anyway. So I guess that could have played a factor in it as well. But like you said, Paul, it could have been, they both weren't aware of what being an alliance held for each other. Maybe... Gagolio thought, hey, cool, we're in alliance. We can raid them. It'll be completely fine. Where Sawei were like, no, no, that, that, that's not what happens in an alliance. So, yeah. Some cross wires and the, the purpose of the alliance had yeah. been achieved. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like it was, at least on, on Sawei's end, mm. agreed to within a very narrow scope of mutual self interest. Whereas the Guangzong seemed to want to push the envelope to make it a blank check for conquest. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good way to put it. And um, so yeah, as I said, with this, there was no real uh, a reason to keep this alliance going. And that raid really was the last straw. And they were enemies once again. And war between Salway and Gagolio was inevitable. And war over this uh, raid actually broke out a few years later in 244 AD. This was with the Battle of Laonku. Going with that uh, pronunciation there, let me know how well I did down below. Uh, the Salway side were led by General Jean with 10,000 men, and King Dongxiao himself led the Gagolio side with 20,000 men in total. And the two armies met in a place called Liancord. And what happened in this battle exactly? We didn't seem to be too sure. Um, different sources give us different tales. Uh, one source tells us that Gagolio were winning initially, but then because they were winning, they were growing too cocky, and that allowed Salway to defeat them in the end. Like, oh, look how amazing we're doing. Oh, no, I've been stabbed. That sort of thing. However, another source claims that Salway won this battle easily. I'm, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear, Paul, at where these two sources come from. One's Chinese, one's Korean. I'm sure you can imagine which one's which. It's amazing how things change so much depending on who exactly is writing the history. Mm-hmm. But when I when I look at this, I just just reminded of a wonderful quote, especially since these two just came out of a of a recent alliance that's really more of a the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and mm. and that's the quote: enemies make dangerous friends. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah, definitely. And like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's kind of how their alliance began, and now that's how their alliance is going. Yeah, those quotes sum up this relationship very well. Yeah. Um. But despite having the larger army, Gagolio were defeated. That's what all sources agree that China, Salway, won this uh, battle while Gagolio didn't. That regardless of how they got there, everyone seems to agree on that front. But King Dongxiao fled in defeat and he retreated back to his mounted fortress called Hoando. So despite King Dongxiao making a break for it, this didn't stop the Salway army by any means. And they knew King Dongxian was heading to his mountain fortress of Huando. So they fastened their horses and carriages and followed him up the mountain. And while uh, Gugolio forces put up some resistance, this was an easy victory for Salway. Uh, Salway forces sacked and destroyed this mountain city, killing thousands. And despite all this death, King Dongshan still evaded capture, retreating to his capital city of Gongnai. And while Sawei forces did try to capture him, they never actually could. Uh, King Dongshan did die, however, just a few years later in 248 AD. So in the grand scheme of epic battles, this actually wasn't too much. It was just a small uh, fight, but it did have some outcomes. And Sawei had accomplished their aim of diminishing Gagorio, like... After these events, Gagolio doesn't appear in Chinese historical texts for at least another half a century, so they were really wiped out the map and wiped out the history books, and Wei clearly felt they were no longer worth talking about. So where exactly would we find Guangdo? So uh, Huando, it, 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 it's technically in modern China today, but it's right on the cusp. It's 
it's so close to the uh, North Korea-China border to this day. So obviously, back then, it would have definitely been part of a Kogolio, but by now, it's on Chinese soil. Okay, because it sounds like they're straddling what probably is one of the more interesting natural barriers that help constitute national borders, in our case, right near the Yalu. It is pretty close to it. Yeah, I'm just looking on like Google Maps now. And yeah, it's actually like pretty darn close to the river. So as I was saying, they were wiped out of the history books for about half a century or so, 50 years. And despite this, though, what's interesting is Sao Wei never actually bothered to try and attempt to claim or occupy Gagorlu at this time. Why this is the case, I'm not too sure. You would have think after this sacking, they could have claimed it quite easily or like made King Dongshan like one of their subject kings, but they never did. And this actually allowed Gagorlu to rebuild itself. Like, so this is actually considered quite a big turning point for the kingdom of Gagorlu. Despite it being such a horrendous defeat, it gave them time to reflect and build up and come back stronger than ever before. And this allowed them to become is allowed them to become the stronger kingdom than ever. And it's very rarely we see defeat in war as a good thing. And what I find interesting about this is one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about Gogolio today and this war is because I just wanted to introduce a new player to the world of alien history. So far, we've been so focused on Rome. We were focused on China. We, we were starting to finally talk about like the, the Parthians and their follow-up as the Sassanids. We talked about the Cushions at some point. And it's great to see some more people. We even talked about the new world very briefly a few episodes back. It's great to just see see our map come alive, Paul, don't you think? I think that's one of the beautiful parts of the show is beginning to see the greater story unfold in places that we simply have not been before. Mm. It's, it's very much what I think could be described as an extremely satisfying but altogether slow burn. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very slow burn. History history in, in the scale we're looking at is, is, is always going to be a slow burn, but it's burning away. It certainly is at that. And it's interesting, they decide not to try to conquer this kingdom. Mm. They don't try to make it into a, a tributary state to them. And I think all we could do at the moment is, it would be conjecture, but... When I think about it, I think to myself, well, one, clearly they are prior prioritizing their strategic interests, and this is not type, top priority. And two, when you're in charge of a nation, well, not nation state, but when you're in charge of a power as large as Sao Wei, or any state for that matter, just because you can do a thing doesn't mean that you should. No, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, couldn't put it better myself. Naturally, we got some questions here after... After yeah. hearing you get into this and, and all yeah. of that. Well, one is, in general, do you feel that Sawi did feel as if they accomplished what they set out to do in the first place, especially in this last major engagement? Did Sawi? I guess uh, I, they did for a time anyway. They, they wiped him out and they didn't even bother mentioning him again for another 50 years. So why is, why, why is that? I think that's so strange. Is it just because they were not particularly relevant? I guess so, yeah. Like, they were so busy battling each other in the Free Kingdoms of China. They maybe just thought, oh, we, we dealt with those guys. We squashed them. Like, we can just carry on battling each other. We don't need to talk about these guys anymore. Of course, um, this is only some somewhat preliminary research I've done. I'm sure if you look in the Korean history books, I'm sure they're, they're, they're mentioned an awful lot more. But just in China's eyes, they just weren't seen as a real threat anymore. They didn't really cause them any issue. They didn't do anything too way in that time period to bother writing about them. Projecting forward from everything that I can see, it seems as if this 50-year window mm. for them, while it most certainly not something that they have wanted to occur, you know, basically getting it handed to them, but it seems like they took a major strategic reversal and then over five decades turned it into realizing a major opportunity what, what what's yeah. going on there and the uh, that's allowing this this change to rebuild and and ultimately come back a bit more powerful than they were your guess is as good as mine paul um yeah i don't know exactly it's just from what i could tell they just fell bad that that knocked them out and they thought huh we could like learn from our i guess maybe i could learn from their mistakes try and figure out how exactly we could come back better and stronger than before did you ever find a korean source talking about this from the time or 
Because I know the Chinese at that point, and, and certainly the Sao Way to be mm. sure, because we've encountered this before. Was there nobody else that was writing in a somewhat similar fashion about this area that wasn't, say, the, the great historical source they were getting from Sao Way and the Way Kingdom? Uh, I couldn't find anything, unfortunately. Um, across the whole World Wide Web, there actually wasn't too much written about this battle and this war. So it was kind of hard to find too much info, but this is what I could find. Um, yeah, that's it, I'm afraid. If there's more out there, please do let us know. Maybe I didn't look hard enough. And as far as the, the, just the general seeds of potential conflict between them, what exactly was the, the major point of contention? Was it just the, the very base desire to expand territory? Or was there something more at play in terms of things that they wanted to acquire? I mean, I'm very curious as to the exact aims of these campaigns. Because if it's just a matter of proximity and them fighting each other, well, okay, that's fine. But I'm curious to know what exactly were the interests at play what, to, to the point in which they were willing to undertake military conflict. Because any time you roll the iron dice, you can come up snake eyes. And so I'm curious what the stakes were here. You said is it because they wanted more land, and I just can't don't feel that's the case. Once Salway defeated Gagolio in this battle, you think they would have claimed that land, but... They never did. They didn't see... Well, I'm the, actually talking about more about the Gregoro. So yeah, maybe they wanted more land. They just wanted to... Well, it kind of feels like because of this raid they decided to do that forced their hand into war with uh, Sao Wei. So it might have just been because they were butting heads at the time. People were... It seems like everyone wanted to rule the world at this point. Everyone was a bit power hungry, wanted more land, more power. So maybe they thought, hey, like China's fighting itself. Maybe we can try and claim some of that as well. So maybe they just wanted to be a bigger player on the world stage at that time. Well, on their world stage anyway. Well, I know in the late Han period when the empire was really tottering and they were more domestically focused, mm. that these Korean kingdoms were nipping at the edges up there. But when you look at this, these particular set of conflicts, and this is really strange because the Gregorio are obviously not a power that you would think would necessarily in a greater engagement being able to take on somebody like Sao Wei. And that it seemed like perhaps they were picking a fight that was out of their league or they simply, you know, rolled the iron dice and lost. And, you know, you look at this and, and like I said, anytime you roll the iron dice, you can always come up snake eyes. And in this case, the Gregorio most certainly did. I mean, they very, very, if, if the Sao Wei had in any way decided to pursue them further, it's over. Yeah. And so it's, it's amazing exactly how you have to weigh this before you make such a decision, especially when you're trying to, you know, go after the big kid on the block. No, it definitely seems like a, this was a power that was set out to prove something at the very least. Mm. Well, something I'd like to know is, as, as they said, I'm sure we'll find out this more as we research more and more, I'd like to know how much more battling uh, Gagorio did after this defeat to Salway. Maybe when they, that, that 50 year period, they thought, hey, Battling isn't our strong suit. Let's not have any more wars or not try to fight as many wars, especially with much bigger entities than ourselves. So maybe this maybe this thought, hey, maybe we'll be a bit more pacifist and pick our battles a bit more carefully. If there's one thing that we have very seldom have ever witnessed in this show so far, <laughs> it's pacifism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess. Okay, maybe, maybe I'm being a bit too hopeful here. <laughs> oh, but it's part of your charm, my friend. Oh. Anything else for us? No, I'm just really looking forward to seeing what happens next with Korea, with Gorgolio and the rest of the Free Kingdoms in Korea. If if something noteworthy catches my attention, you'll be sure I'll talk about it. Yes, undoubtedly. And Korean history can be a little difficult to parse out from this yeah. period and from English sources. As far as my experience with it is concerned, naturally, I'm sure there are others that probably have had more. So certainly don't take my experience as a... As, as a hard, fast rule here, but it's a very complicated place, despite the fact that in reality, it's really not that large. It's so peculiar how, like I said at the beginning of this uh, this segment, despite being so small relatively, just how complex it all is there. Just this little like peninsula just off the coast of China, just uh, extruding off China. Just sitting there, you know, yeah. with an arm into the, the Yellow Sea as, yeah. it, as it remains today. Uh, it's all back in business. Well, it's all like just all kicking off there still. <laughs> it 
has oh, remained relevant, that. certainly, for yeah. all of our life so far. Yeah. And at this point, there's no reason to believe that that will change. But you know what? I think we've eaten our words enough recently in recent <laughs> years. So <laughs> let's, let's, let's try not to predict too much. But thank you, Patrick. That was fantastic. Oh, you're welcome. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Now, Paul, we don't normally do birthday shout-outs here at AD History, but we have a very special someone celebrating a very special birthday this decade. And I want to say a very happy birthday to Rome. And they're celebrating their 1,000th birthday. Happy birthday, Rome. Yes, a very happy birthday to Rome. You've made it a millennia. Congratulations. You changed a great deal along the way. I mean, good, good goodness. A thousand <laughs> years, Patrick. A thousand years. I mean, like I said, they've changed a lot. They've come a long way. A yeah. very, very long way. And then even part of them is going to exist for almost another, what, 1,200 years, depending on how yeah. you look at the Byzantines. So, hey, hey, that's a hell of an achievement. So, yeah. Cheers to you, Rome. You're very interesting. You've been the subject of a lot of our work. You can be incredibly interesting and incredible bastards. So definitely one of the true highlights of our show thus far. Yes, and it was just, just just to give a little bit of historical context to this, uh, it was, I believe, 248 AD in which the 1,000th uh, birthday anniversary celebrations were celebrated in Rome. Uh, they were hosted by Philip the Arab, and I'm just reading, this is solely on Wikipedia here. Uh, so the Colosseum held some games. They were originally planned for Gordian III's Roman triumph over the Persians. And in celebration, more than 1,000 gladiators were killed, along with hundreds of exotic animals, including hippos, leopards, lions, giraffes, and one rhinoceros. Rome, you know how to party. <laughs> well, a- a- absolutely. And the fact that 1,000 gladiators died, one for every year. Exactly. One for, I didn't think about it, one for every year. Gosh. It's like the candles. So instead of blowing out the candles, you behead the gladiators. Or seeing counting down with the ball drop. Nope. Thousand <laughs> gladiators. We have to literally create a river of blood to celebrate our greatness. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I know we promised I know we promised we wouldn't talk about Rome in this episode, but then we just couldn't pass on this. Once again, happy birthday, Rome. Here, here. Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word uh, from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Now, Paul, it's time for you to finally uh, properly introduce us to the Sassanids. It is at that. As we continue exploring Rome's crisis of the third century, which, as we've mentioned, is one of the headlines of this third season of AD history. In the last couple of episodes, it hasn't been about Rome alone, by no means. And in this case, we've obviously talked a bit about, because they've been quite important, the Sassanid Persians and their creation and their coming up through and taking down the Parthian Empire And then, of course, their first major military conflicts with Rome. And that is extremely important. And the crisis of the third century is extremely important. But today, I want us to get a better idea of exactly who the Sassanid Persians were, how they operated, what scholars know about them, because they're going to be hanging around for another four centuries, guys. It's on in that respect. While this will, to some degree, most certainly keep us up to date on some of the more interesting happenings in the crisis of the 3rd century, this is something that we definitely need to explore now, and that is precisely what we are going to do. And so, a bit of recap, to be sure, is that, of course, they came out of the Parthian Empire, and this happened about 20 years ago with the victory of Adishir I at Hermosdegan. 
So just something I'm curious on, this is maybe my, my, my territory more, but just a bit of jargon busting, like Parthian and Persian. What exactly is the difference between those two things, if you know at all? Well, they're both what part of what is considered, even at the time, Iran. Yeah, and even to this day, like some people still refer to Iran as Persia, which is just sort of very, very antiquated. Yeah, as I understand it, the Parthians were basically warriors from the northeast of the general geographic area we know as Persia and Iran. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this case, the Sassanians or the Sasanians, especially the Sasanian family, comes in an area known as Persis, which mm-hmm. is in the south and west of Iran, which has been, and especially at this time in this era, extremely prosperous. So you have a, a long empire of about four centuries under the Parthians, but they're primarily warriors and while they certainly built a state that could endure and was a significant power in their own right, I don't necessarily know that, that their greatest skill was state building, specifically their mm-hmm. own. Mm. But they were great fighters. They were great soldiers. But by this time, and after 400 years, it was a power that had really run its course, as so many powers do. And ones that even managed to, to go that long are incredible in and of themselves. But the Sassanids, especially the Sassan family, when you're talking about Adashir I or his son Shapur I, they are coming out of southwestern Iran from the area generally known at this time as Persis. And in the case of the Parthians, they come out, they're basically nomadic people looking further back. And they bring out a lot of that nomadic thinking over that's been cultivated a long period of time into their Parthian experience just in terms of, as I mentioned a few episodes back, their kind of decentralization of power especially as the various city-states within that structure become more wealthy and certainly demand more sovereignty over their own affairs. So what exactly does a federation entail in this case? It's composed of a variety of states or provinces or small kingdoms that have a certain amount of autonomy over their own affairs, but they all fall under a greater umbrella structure in this case, in, in a very general sense. And and in many respects, like I said, that's kind of how the Parthians operated. In the case of the Sassanids, they actually increased the size of these various constituent city-states and whatnot, as opposed to just having more small states, as it were. But ultimately, the Parthians are taking in their own tradition, and the Sassanid, and especially under the I and then Shapur, a a re-energized and highly organized approach, because by this point, after four centuries, you know, Hats off to Parthia. You did you did better than most, but they were just truly at their end. It, it, it had decayed for them. And so in this case, once again, Adashir and Shapur presented themselves as the, the Shanhan Shah, be the king of kings. And even more importantly, they wished to communicate that they were handpicked by God as a ruler. And this was shown on a variety of rock reliefs. But we'll get into how this works in a moment. And the god the Sassanid emperors derive their power from is a Zoroastrian god known as Ahura Mazda. And what is that exactly? <laughs> this is a very old religion. Amazingly, mm-hmm. as I think I mentioned a few episodes back, it's actually still practiced today. Wow. Yes. So basically, and like I said, I'm not a religious history scholar, I'm not a theologian, but I'll give you the breakdown, especially insofar as it's relevant to our topic here. Zoroastrianism is a monotheistic religion, where Ahura Mazda is viewed as the primary creator, especially of all that is good and right. Mm. This, this deity is the embodiment of all that is right in the world, all that is right in the universe, and very the creation itself. So this is clearly a very powerful deity. Does it originate from like the Persia Iran area, or is it from further afield? I'm I'm not entirely sure. That's a really good question. As far as I know, it is a religion that is generally indigenous to this area. Okay, but it's one of many religions in this area, to be yeah. sure. So we'll get more into that in a moment because it's interesting yeah. stuff. And in the case of Zoroastrianism or Zoroastrianism, there is this focus on the concept of good and evil. This is not something that's terribly hard to comprehend. There are many religions that deal with the exact same thing in their own way. But ultimately, that it is the choice of any individual in their life to 
except one or the other, but hopefully always to always embrace Ahura Mazda and the good, as it were. And as important as Zoroastrianism was to the Sassanians and the Sassan family, Ardashir and his son Shapur, it was apparently not the sanctioned state religion at the time we are talking about. However, the Sasanians did everything possible to try to communicate that they devotedly worship Ahura Mazda and that the reason they were there is because they were favored by Ahura Mazda. So, okay, I understand now. So why didn't the state make this religion compulsory? Well, it's interesting. So basically, well, one is, like I said, it's a very diverse place. When you're, when you're ruling, especially in, in an area at a time in which centralized control and direction and influence is not exactly what we know today, and in addition to the fact that you have a lot of people coming and going that are under that umbrella, there is a certain pragmatism to being tolerant, so long as whatever group is not getting in your way or somehow conflicts with your interests, mm. or the interests of others that are your allies, and you get the idea. And on top of that, this is the other interesting thing about Zoro- Zoroastrianism, is if they're not making it compulsory, why is Adashir and Shapur trying to show their connection to it? And yeah. And the fact of the matter is, to some degree, as I understand it, Zoroastrianism, at least at the time, was kind of an elite religion in its oh, own okay. way. Like I said, not everybody practiced it, and, but they seemed to very much be believers. And on top of that, these families, the Sasans, from everything I can tell based on the scholarship that I read, their family going back was at, were actually priests in Zoroastrianism who over time, as for all intents and purposes, let's call them clergy, expanded their scope of interest and action from the religious to the political. And so naturally, when we're talking about the Sassanids and the Sassan family, this is something that's obviously very important to them. And not only is it very important to them, but it definitely serves a political purpose. So there's a practical aspect to it, which is to say there are more important things than making everybody follow our religion. But they still think it's important, and they still think there's obviously value in having some direct connection. But this is not to be confused with them claiming that they themselves were divine. It's so interesting how like religion and power can so often intermix with one another. And they do often. Yeah. And, and they do often, especially Awful when you're... Lot. Certainly in Christianity and with the Romans, yeah. you, have, you eventually yeah. have, have a religion that ends up adopting some of the, uh, some of the framework of the state. And in this case, the Sassanids are not making the mistake as far as Zoroastrianism, as far as I can tell, of, of trying to knit together a, a common understanding and conception of doctrine and then forcing it upon everybody. They're just simply better things to do for them. You know, I would like to think they had bigger fish to fry. And that, yeah. like I said, there was really no point in alienating people that are your subjects that are legitimately in your interest to prosper. As devout as they are to Zoroastrianism... Being an ideologue and a zealot for Zoroastrianism just really wasn't in the cards for them. They had far more earthly concerns, I think is the best way to put it. But even though they're not forcing this and they're not making a state religion at this point, and even when they do, they're still it's not being made compulsory. That doesn't happen for about a century before it becomes the state religion. In the case of Shapur I, who succeeds Adashir after Adashir dies in 242 in this decade, because they actually ruled as co-emperors for a couple of years prior to the death of Adashir I, is Shapur ends up building a number of temples around what we know today as modern-day Iran. And they're called fire temples. And they, they keep and maintain these, these flames that have a different significances for their various ways of life. That's something I can't elaborate on too much about it, because I don't know enough about it. But I can definitely tell you the impact that it had, which is they are kind of steering things for at least themselves to be viewed in a very specific way and to be a benefactor to Zoroastrianism while not doing it to the exclusion of all their subjects and making them join into the fun. And it's interesting how you mentioned this fire worshiping, how they they wanted to set themselves up to be viewed in a specific way, because to this day, from a language point of view, fire worshiper is something it's actually something of a derogatory. Um, it's something of a yeah. derogatory term we use today to call someone a fire worshiper. It's to associate someone of archaic beliefs or like 
ancient rituals. Like, and it's just interesting to they, 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 you mentioned it here. Perhaps Rome would have thought of uh, the Sassanids as nothing more than a bunch of fire worshippers, and that was quite quite the case. But here, it was the modern way of thinking. Well, I think I mentioned it before at some point. I don't fully recall, but that particular aspersion happens a great deal when the Saudi Arabian government is looking to sling mud at the Iranians because, of course, the Arab Sunnis, and in the case of Iran, they are Shia Persians. And one thing that the Saudis will do when they're looking to basically put down Persian Shia Muslims is call them a bunch of fire worshippers. And this is exactly where it comes from. Yes, you have mentioned that already, Paul. And yeah, there is there is in action as yeah, in, in perhaps the best example possible is literally modern day modern day like Sassanids, if you want to say it to that extent, being called fire worshippers to this day. But in general, they kind of have a Roman practical disposition for a lot of the times that we're talking about. Obviously, we've gone through periods in the show where Jewish and Christian persecution happens in a tremendous way. But in terms of when the Romans were, let's just say, a bit more practical and a bit more stable in terms of administration, it was always tolerance. And unless you, so long as you kept the peace, paid your taxes, and didn't cause a problem for them, they would just generally let you be. They were not interested in an evangelical mission. And in this case, it doesn't appear that Zoroastrianism was being evangelized either, specifically to those who were not members of that religion. But there's certainly a heck of a lot to be said about a particular ruler or their family and the narrative that they were chosen by the all-powerful deity to be in the position they're in. Mm, and this is something I'm interested in well, Paul. Is how did the Sassanids actually come to power? How did they get tangible power? Did they have like resources, manpower, human resources? Like what got them into this position? Well, there's a lot of things that are going on here. It's an interesting question. So there's a lot of things that go into the understanding of what makes a state and what's important. Mm. And in this case, they have a variety of resources in a variety of places that are particularly useful to them. And at this time, in what's considered the, the highlands of Iran in the north, was largely their base for the manpower that they required for their military. And, of course, in Mesopotamia, which they've been fighting with the Romans over for again and again and again over the last better part of 40 years at this point in our show, mm -hmm. there's a tremendous amount of wealth to be had in Mesopotamia. And, you know, basic commerce various resources, things of that nature, things that are awfully important. I believe there's actually farming that goes on there as well. I think it might be a breadbasket. I'm not 100% sure. Hmm. But those are the two main ones. And, of course, that's not the only thing that made them powerful. That's not the only thing that helped establish the state that they wanted to build. One of the things they did do in that respect had to do with a major infrastructure projects. And they did quite a few of them. Hmm. But for our purposes today, I thought it would be most important to, to share one of them so you guys can kind of see what we're talking about here. And in this case, it is the Shishtar, better known in modern Western Iran, where there is the historic hydraulic system. And it's apparently still functional, if I understand correctly. Wow. It's kind of ridiculous. So basically, yeah. what Shapur did was with captured Roman troops, he first had them construct a bridge at that location and a dam, as it were. It was a major infrastructure project for the purposes of irrigation awfully important. And moreover, they took the specialties of those Romans and the skills that they possessed, and they learned from them in terms of engineering. Because Romans were tremendous engineers, as we know. That's extremely impressive how they, they took advantage of this. It's extremely industrious. Yeah, and it's, it, it's so fascinating to hear of another when we think about technological technological advancements in the ancient world, it's normally Rome and China that come to mind. But to hear if there was another kingdom who were sort of somewhat on a par, especially with well, with help of with help from Rome, who captured Roman troops, it's amazing to hear that like there was another part of the world that was kind of on par with these two guys. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, the Sassanid Persians were you know altogether sophisticated in their own right in a number of ways. But they were also, they seemed to be, certainly at this time, keenly aware of when they could learn and absorb something that was extremely useful to them. And when you go back just even beyond the infrastructure stuff, much like, say, the Kushan Empire or the various Roman outposts in Syria, 
And then, you know, basically because in this case, they're an economic powerhouse because just like the Cushions or the Roman Middle East, essentially, they're economic middlemen for the economic activity that happens roughly with what we consider to correspond with the Silk Road. And on top of that, and this mm. is the other important thing, is because they essentially control the Persian Gulf with having the ports of southern Iraq in their possession, they're also the ones that hold the whip hand for sea lanes in trade with India. Undoubtedly, and this is certainly still true today, when you're doing large-scale commerce where shipping is extremely important and you're sending a lot, more often than not, though it was certainly a heck of a lot more dangerous at that time, doing it by sea is definitely the way to go as opposed to hauling it along. Unless you're somebody who's dealing in very small, fine wares and they don't really have a choice or they're... You get the idea. So hmm. they're sitting there and they're really enriching themselves in that position. As far as the economy itself and what they're known for, however, from what we can tell, and unfortunately... In this case, there's not a heck of a lot that is written that has been uncovered by scholars that focuses on this. So a lot of what they find is through either talk from outside sources from this area or archaeological finds. And mm -hmm. one of the things that they did, because they were they were very, very good when it came to manufacturing and exporting textiles. One of the biggest such examples of this is what is known as Persian silk, which is something that became highly sought yeah. after in this case. In addition to that, they were also known for creating very fine cut glass, which is also something that, in a way, very very much competes with Alexandria's yeah. reputation for doing just that. That Persian silk is still known of to this day. Oh, like, that's a very synonymous thing. Yeah, absolutely. And basically, they're very fortunate because they have two opposite-looking geographically ends to their territory, which are extremely beneficial. They have the one that looks east towards China and India, and obviously the riches, possibilities there. Even with the Chinese stability that's been going on and the questions that are surrounding that, there's still a great many commerce possibilities. And then, of course, India is no different. And ultimately, whether it be whoever it was in that area, it's one of the reasons why it, be, it was so strategically important from a commerce point of view. But this is the thing that's really strange about the Sassanids is that all of these things that we'd really love to know about them, whether it be trade, and when I mean know about them, I'm not talking simply about archaeological finds and the little things that we can piece together, but there isn't a whole lot going on in terms of people that are writing about things like trade or government administration or everyday life, that sort of thing. All, a lot of the histories are either, one, like I said, written by outsiders that are not intimately involved in this respect, or those who are extremely interested centuries later. And that, that's kind of the rub when it comes to looking into this sort of thing. But ultimately, this is the funny part, actually, at least I think it is. While they weren't taking anything down at the time, and as far as the other things that we would find interesting about them, what they were do, what happened later, especially after the Muslim conquest in the 6th century, is for the Arab Muslims who conquered them, they were really interested in the Sassanid Empire. Hmm. And for the most part, when they would have to ask themselves a question, you know, what, how does a great empire act? The answer is, well, let's look at the Sassanid Persians. Yeah. Isn't that something? Really something. It's, we always love how sort of history sort of rolls into event after event. It wasn't just a chapter closed, next chapter. These things mesh together so much. And like these Arab rulers... They looked upon their ancestors, the Sassanids, to figure out how to get things done. And it's just, it's interesting, they're a rather unknown sort of empire, say, in the grand scheme of, of world history, the Sassanids. Like, people know the Roman Empire and the Mongol Empire. But they, they were such key players, and it's fascinating to hear so much about them and finally get to understand who these people threatened Rome were. And I guess the question for you, Paul, is do you think they were worthy threats to Rome? Do you think, do you think Rome fully understood what kind of threat the Sassanids posed? Well, if they hadn't figured out after last time, you know, God help them. No, yeah, so... There's going to come a point later in this season, more towards mm. the end, where the Romans and the Sassanid Persians actually come to a reasonable, stable, and long-term accommodation. What we're looking at right now is a lot of this initial jockeying between the two of them. Mm. And in this case, when we're talking about jockeying, and this is just kind of our brief look in here in terms of what's going on with... Rome's crisis of the third century, 
of course, is that I believe in 244, Shapur I, the son of Ardashir I, decides to once again invade Roman territory, and he literally, I believe, goes well into Syria, which of course forces the response from Gordian III, our, our you know, preteen yeah. emperor. While this military conflict, while Shapur's conquest is not land that he ultimately held, he ended up getting a lot from it, because in this case, when Gordian goes out there, because now this is the expectation for all emperors, whether it's an offensive campaign whether it's a defensive campaign, you can't delegate the authority. And when he goes out there, he dies under very questionable circumstances. And there are a number of sources that give accounts that he certainly did die, but they didn't say precisely how he died. There's not an agreement there in terms. Some believe it was partially due to disease. Some people believe that it might have been something that he ate. I don't know if we can entail possibly poisoning <laughs> from that. Um, yeah. There is a tale, I believe, from the Sassanid Persian side that he was tr thrown off his horse and trampled. So he does not yeah. survive the encounter. And even though Shapur I does not keep his conquest into Roman Syria, when he eventually makes a peace with Philip the Arab, he ends up collecting a huge indemnity for him to withdraw. On top of that, his forces and the Sassanid Persians, when they're in Roman territory, also extract by looting a great deal as well. In fact, this piece that is made out there by Philip the Arab, even though he, like all emperors, try to spend it as some great achievement in which they're victorious, the fact of the matter is, even though Shapur didn't keep the territory he seized, he ended up walking from it, away from it, as a much wealthier man and his state in a much stronger position. The Sassanids said they did a good dent. They, you know, they they played their part in the downfall of Rome, especially during this crisis. And correct me if I'm wrong, but they actually outlive at least the Western Roman Empire, don't they? They do. It turns in that their great rival long term, certainly one of them is going to end up becoming the Byzantines, which are just yeah. the direct successors in many ways of the Romans. And of course, we're gonna, next season, that's going to be something that we're going to look at more and more to be sure. Yeah. And I mean, they certainly outlived the Western Roman Empire. Yeah. There, there's no question about that. But interestingly enough, as we go forward, one, they're going to come to a more stable agreement towards the end of the season. And two, I believe it's in next season, they're also going to face a common enemy that is spelled H and ends with Hun. That sounds about right. They're going to come muck a lot of stuff over. I did say muck just then, but the word it sounds like could very much apply to that as well. Undoubtedly. I mean, <laughs> they're going to get to a point in the not too distant future, relatively speaking, where the common enemy is going to bring them into common interest. And I look forward to hearing about that, Paul. Do you have anything else to share about the Sassanids? Because it's been so great to hear so much about them. I hope we can learn more because they are very interesting. They are extremely important, but I do look forward to looking more. They're on our radar. They're going to remain important. And we want to give you this look and peek in today in terms of where scholarship is, what we know, because they're going to be important. And of course, next time we're going to look at an aspect of the crisis of the third century that we've never done before. That's something totally new to AD history. And we have no doubt that you're going to enjoy it immensely. It's going to be a very special episode and you'll definitely want to tune yes. in for that. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in history, as well as my reader submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II related questions, which if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye. Thank you. And take care. Yes. Thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. 
Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.